Good morning again. If you were here the last time I was in this pulpit, you may recall that I told you Pastor Rachel was going to be preaching today, and you'll notice that I am not her. She is here, but she is not here. And the reason for that is because while I spent the last two weeks in Illinois, she spent the last week very sick and recovered like yesterday. And so I told her not to worry about trying to put together a sermon in half a day. Um, Because when I was an associate, I came up with a, a solution for this kind of situation. As an associate, you have to be on call to uh, fill in the pulpit at a moment's notice. And my boss told me to write a sermon and just have it ready, and I never got around to actually doing that. Um, <laughs> but I have a different solution. And what it has turned out, and I think my wife will back me up on this, as my best sermon ever. Certainly the one in which the Holy Spirit speaks the most and the most clearly, and I can guarantee that. And the title of this sermon is Anagnosis. It is a word that you probably don't know, but it is a word that you have heard uh, translated in Scripture many times, and it is something that churches are commanded to practice. Perhaps the most direct place in which this is said is in 1 Timothy 4.13. Paul tells Timothy, Until I come, give your attention to anagnosis, exhortation, and teaching. Anagnosis is one of, the, one of the most important things that churches do. It is a collective spiritual discipline. It is a key way in which God speaks to us. And it's something that we are going to devote the most time to today that we've done since I've been here. So obviously the first question though is what is anagnosis? Well, the word anagnosis, uh, it, it's a version of the word to know, to, to know, and it refers to reading something out loud, usually publicly. So the normal translation of that verse that I just read to you is, until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. This is something that is done frequently, as we'll see throughout the New Testament, and also when it begins, a tradition that begins in the Old Testament, and it is a key part of the life of the church. But first of all, we have to understand what we're talking about. Okay, so it's reading in public, and as you'll notice from this verse, it is different from preaching and teaching. Exhortation is another word for preaching. So uh, I actually, I never took a preaching class. I, I got a different kind of master's degree, but I, my dad is a pastor, and I've done a lot of studying about preaching. And for me, the Preaching is different from teaching. Okay, so I taught a Sunday school class this morning, and the focus of the Sunday school class is to impart knowledge or skills. Right? The word here that's being used for preaching, exhortation, is a clue to us of what's unique about preaching. For me, at least, preaching is unique because preaching is always a call to action. It is always meant to inspire people to take some kind of step, to act, to do, to change. A sermon is never just, for me, should never just be information download. It should always be something that gives you a way to change, a way to move forward, a way to act, a way to be obedient to God. It's exhortation, right? Maybe it's just encouraging you to go do something, but that's why we always end with next steps in every sermon, because to me, that's what makes it a sermon. But notice here that Paul refers to these as three different things, public reading, exhortation, and teaching. So it's different from preaching and teaching. Now, 
preaching and anagnosis often go together. In fact, the root of pre- the practice of preaching is explaining what was just read. So, for instance, in the book of Acts, there's a point at which Paul is visiting a synagogue, which the one thing they did, as we'll see every week in the synagogue, was they did public reading of Scripture. And after the reading, they sent word to him saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Basically, they were... My dad has had this happen to him as a pastor. It hasn't happened to me before, but he was in a church visiting, and they found out he was a pastor. They read Scripture, and then they said, All right, Brother Holmes is going to come up and give us a sermon. Like, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Let's go. Um, but that's basically what they would do. And there are churches where they still do that, where they read scripture, and then if, you have a, if that gave you something to say, stand up and say it. Um, so it's different from preaching, and it is also a key spiritual discipline of God's people. And you may not realize this, but it is a key thing going on in the story of the Bible. So the first place where we see this happen is in the story of Moses. God tells Moses to gather the people together and read to them the law. Read to them the scripture. So they gather together and they read it so that everybody knows and hears what God has said. Then when Joshua takes over, one of the first things that Joshua does is they go into the land and they're ready to just start living there. Joshua gets them all together and he reads it to them again so that everybody knows what God has said and what God has called them to do. And then the next generation comes around and they don't do it. They don't get together to read the the law. And they fall out of this practice. And if you read in Judges, they also forget their history. They forget God and they drift away from him. And this continues where people just are really ignorant of the law all the way until Josiah, who was one of the last kings of Judah, And he has them renovate the temple and they discover a copy of the law and he reads it and it says he tears his garments because he realized we haven't been doing any of this. Wow, we are really far off. So what does he do? He gets them together and he reads them the law. Unfortunately, it was too little too late and it it wasn't able to correct them and they went into exile. But when they came back and they were gonna rededicate themselves to following God, what did Ezra and Nehemiah do? Called them together and read God's word to them. And that started a practice when what they really, I think the main lesson that the Jews learned from the exile is to read their Bibles more. Because what changed after that is they developed synagogues. And the main thing you do in a synagogue is you gather, especially when the temple was still standing, the one thing that you essentially did in a synagogue that you had to do was you gathered together to read Scripture. This is mentioned in Acts. They say, uh, since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogue. Specifically, someone stands up and reads from Scripture every week, and that's one of the main reasons people gather is to hear that. Jesus participated in this. Jesus launched his ministry during, uh, b- while he performed anagnosis. It says, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. That word is this. Every time you see yellow text, that's the same word, okay? So he stands up and he reads the reading for the week, which is from Isaiah, and he sets it down and says, that's about me. And that's his commentary on it. 
But that's how he launches his, announces his ministry, is through this practice of public reading. And then we saw that this is something that continued when Christians gathered together in church. One of the key things that they did was they read from Scripture. And we know that they read from the Old Testament. That's primarily what it referred to. But as we'll see, they also read from the letters of Paul and later the rest of the New Testament. And it continues on to this day that God's people gather together and read God's word. Now, one major thing has changed, which is that for the very tail end of the history of the church, if you put a timeline, the tail end over here, there's actually been a time when the majority of Christians could read the Bible for themselves, where they were literate and could find a copy of the Bible and could afford to own it themselves. Tiny little, like 150 years. For the rest of history of the church, the main way people have been able to get the Bible is hearing it read in church. So the question is, in this day, when you can pull out your phone and have 50 different translations at your fingertips anytime you want, why bother with the public reading of Scripture? I think that's part of the reason why we don't do it as much. We, the weight of Scripture reading and preaching tends more toward the preaching part. I think it's because we have so much access to the Bible. But there are good reasons why we should still practice reading the Bible out loud in groups. Why should we do this? Reason number one, it's what the Bible was designed for. The Bible was written for this. And you can see clues to this. For instance, there's a place in Matthew where Jesus is talking And for our purposes, what he's saying doesn't actually matter, but there's a parenthetical thing in here. He says, Jesus is talking and says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. And in there, Matthew inserts, let the public reader understand. That is a note to the person he assumes is reading this out loud to the congregation. I don't know what exactly that marks. Does that mean they're supposed to do air quotes or do a certain inflection or like just pay attention, really emphasize this, but let the person reading this out loud pay attention, okay? Right now, we're studying the book of Colossians, and it says at the end of that book, after this letter has been publicly read at your gathering, have it publicly read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also publicly read the letter from Laodicea. So the letters that Paul wrote were not internal memos to the pastors of the church. They were, supposed, they were read to the gathering. And finally, maybe most significantly, the book of Revelation is designed to be read out loud. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. Next year, we're going to spend some time in Revelation, but I think it's important for the way we read it to recognize that 99% of the Christians who have ever interacted with Revelation have not been able to pull it out and do cross-references and make charts out of it. They listened to it. The message of Revelation is something you can pick up by hearing. That's how this informs the way we handle the Bible, to remember that it's something that we're meant to hear. The second thing that happens when we publicly read scripture, the second value to this is that it helps us to remember because most of you didn't get to decide what you're going to hear in that service. One of the things that happens when we're left on our own is we tend to emphasize the things we like or we're comfortable with and we avoid the things we're not comfortable with. And so you might find that you're uncomfortable with certain parts of the Bible, you just don't read them. How many people have spent time in Numbers or Leviticus or the genealogies of Chronicles recently? 
Huh? Don't worry, I'm not taking us into the genealogies of Chronicles. But, right, and, but when someone else picks what we're going to read, it forces you to read the stuff you forgot about. How often has someone else read a passage you going, I forgot that was in there. I don't think I ever knew that was in there. I've been skipping that book because it starts out so boring. You know, like, so reading scripture helps us to remember the things that we would otherwise forget on our own. And finally, most importantly, I told you that I could promise that this sermon is going to be the best sermon I ever preach here, or certainly the best sermon I've ever preached before. And this Holy Spirit is going to speak the most in this sermon, as far as I can tell. That is because there is power in reading Scripture. That you don't actually need a pastor to talk after the Bible for the Bible to do something in your heart. The Bible, according to the book of Hebrews, it says, the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You ever had a bird or a bat get inside a house and just fly around crazy and make it just, once it gets in, it's all over making all kinds of messes. I don't know why that just popped into my head as an explanation of what the Bible does, but once it gets into you, there is no telling what it'll do to you. There's just no telling what'll happen. So the scripture has the power to change our hearts and our lives. So here's the rest of the sermon. The rest of the sermon, we are halfway through the book of Colossians. What we're going to do, if you have your Bible, because I've been asking you to take out your Bible and follow along with me, if you have your Bible, I want you to take it, and I want you to put it away. Now, you have an insert that's just blank, partly because when we printed the bulletin, we still didn't know who was going to be up here today. Okay? You can take some notes if you want, but what's going to happen is I'm going to open this binder and read to you the book of Colossians. And you're going to listen to the book of Colossians. And I think you'll find that the Bible looks a bit different. The Bible looks different when you read it in different amounts. And reading an entire book of the Bible, it's not a very long book, it won't take very long, but it, first of all, you'll see the book differently. It's like looking at a, your neighborhood in Google Maps you go, oh, that's how those things fit together. Like, I don't know about you, but for me, I've only lived here like five years, and I, my brain still cannot combine, um, <laughs> what is it, uh, Turner Road? Lancaster Commercial and Turner are on separate maps in my head, and I still cannot fit them together, right? Like, I, I just don't, in my brain, they are not, I don't know how they, how they compare to each other. If I were to spend more time looking at Google Maps, I would know. And so, so reading a book all the way, it gives you a different perspective than when you only do it a verse at a time. Also, hearing it causes different things to come to your mind than you might just get from looking at it. And also, you're not going to be hearing the verse breaks, the chapter breaks, any of the stuff that we've added to it. You're just going to be hearing the word. So I'm going to read this, and that's going to be the rest of the sermon. I'm going to leave it to Paul to speak the rest of it. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister in Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we have not stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created in him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you By his physical body through his death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If, indeed, you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love, so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding, And have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, 
In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human traditions, based on the elements of the world rather than on Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspirited mind. They don't hold on to the head from whom the body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as, you, as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. 
And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put away all of the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule over your hearts. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, Submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and so he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greeting, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. 
And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea, and for those in Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea, and to Nympha, and to the church in her home. After this letter has been read in your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord, so that you can accomplish it. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. As you hear the word of God, as his word through his spirit enters your heart, maybe he tugged at you in some way. Maybe something stood out to you. Maybe this document that was written 2,000 years ago hit on something that happened to you this week. I don't know what God is doing in your heart, but I know that now is the best time to respond to it. So maybe God is summoning you to commit your life to him. This is the best day for you to do that. Maybe he's calling you to take some step like bearing with the brother or sister in Christ or forgiving someone or serving in some way or, or committing to growing in greater maturity, which is a major theme in that book. I don't know what he is calling you to do. Maybe he's calling you to turn away from a sin. Maybe you heard that list of sins and you thought, most of those I'm good on, but oh, that's my weakness. Maybe you heard that list of virtues and said, man, I just don't practice that one. Whatever God is putting on your heart, encourage you to commit to taking that step. We have ways for you to commit to another, a next step here at the church. There are cards in the seat back in front of you, a connect card, a grow card, and a serve card. If you want to uh, find out more about our church, get more connected. If you want to get baptized, if you want to do any of those kinds of things, there's a red card. If you want to join one of our groups or classes to know more about God and to work with others to draw closer to him, that's what the green card is for. And if you want to give back in some way and serve the church or the community in some way, that's what the blue card is for. So we invite our praise team to come up. And as they join me, I want you to consider what is it that God 